Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record that they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the comedian Jay Foreman. Jay is a writer and a stand-up and a songwriter and he also presents YouTube videos such as Map Men and Politics Unboring, which have got him over 1.3 million subscribers and 180 million views, uh, all of whom like watching him explain complicated things in a non-boring way. And Jay has chosen as his comfort blanket the very entertaining French comic strip Asterix, Le Très Entertaining, Française, Bon Dessinée Française, Bon Dessinée Française, Français Asterix. Asterix. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And you are bringing on something which I'm very excited to be talking about because it was inevitable at some point we'd do this. This is something I've been a huge fan of my whole life and I thought if I ever do come on the podcast, what will I bring? And I'm, I'm, I feel like a bit of a fraud because on the one hand, I'm really excited to talk about it because <laughs> I grew up with it and I know so many of the books backwards. But on the other hand, I, I don't know if I count as an expert because surely to be an expert in this thing, you also, by the way, is it okay if I sort of like secretly don't say what it is until I drop and reveal it's the thing in the title of the podcast? I don't know why you're setting this up. I mean, everyone knows it's Asterix, but We're basically, <laughs> I always imagine that if you are, if you're a proper Asterix fan, you're meant to also be a fan of all of the great traditional Franco-Belgian comics and Tintin as well, and exactly, and he's no good and so on. But, but, but Asterix is the only one that I've read. I'm sort of like resolutely team Asterix and growing up refused to read any Tintin. And right. I guess that means, am I not really worthy to talk about this? How does it work? No, I think it's a passion thing. It's, I think also, you should, if you like something, you should like it. Honest love of something is far more important than expertise, I think. Because otherwise it's just train spotting, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. My, my qualifications in this is that I've been reading these books my whole life. And I, the fact that I'm still reading them now means they must have made some kind of impression on me. I've just noticed because you've brought a pile of Asterix books. I've got my pile of Asterix books here and yours are in French. That qualifies you as some kind of Asterix boffin because I've got Asterix in the big fight and you've got Asterix in Le Combat des Chefs. Le Combat des Chefs. 
it oh, means sorry. we're going to do the most fun thing is compare them side by side and see where the translators and made learn, the sound effects different and, and so on. French. That, well, this is genuinely, this is part of the reason that I'm into Asterix is because it was a gateway for me to learning French. Really? I, so I was introduced to Asterix, I can't remember exactly how, but probably in the kids section of the library. Yeah. And growing up and reading Asterix, I was always aware that I wasn't reading the originals. There's these little clues, if you look carefully, they've used the 70s equivalent of Photoshop to get rid of the original text. Tipex. Yeah. So sometimes the speech balloon would be a bit too small or a bit yeah. too big. Or sometimes if it's, a, if it's a crowd scene, you can see that they've painstakingly painted out the words and left some blank space to paint new words on. You can see these little clues all over the place yes. that there is out there somewhere a sacred original text. Just put on that well. No, no, American, no, et tu le fais bien. I was always aware that there was the original French asterisk, right. and at the time I didn't speak any French. And I remember <laughs> being in, uh, in my local library in Edgware, and they had, for some reason, one of the original French books. I was like, oh, okay, I have to read this. I basically used it to learn French. And that is, to this day, the reason the reason <laughs> that I wanted to do well at French at school, the reason I went on to do a French degree and can still speak a bit of French now is because of Asterix. And I think there's no better escapism than reading a book that's in its own language and is not seemingly related to anything else that you have on your bookshelf. But I thought, I, I don't care. I just want to see Asterix as Uderzo and Goscinny. I'm never sure how to pronounce that name. Albert Uderzo, like we say in, in English... <laughs> It's an Italian name belonging to a French man. So yeah. no matter how you say it, it'll sound wrong. It should be either <laughs> Uderzo or Uderzo or yeah. Uderzo. They all sound wrong. Alors, I think I'm going to go with Uderzo. Ce qu'il faudrait faire, euh, Uderzo, c'est simplement un, un petit cours. Comment est-ce qu'on dessine Astérix Voilà. Bon, bah écoutez, vous allez voir, c'est très simple. Il n'y a que des ronds et, de, de, et des avales. Alain Gorsini. Gorsini. Avec Astérix, le regard de Goscinny sur les Gaulois balayait la bande dessinée des années 60. On a eu la chance de faire quelque chose qui, qui plaît au public, qui amuse le public, qui nous amuse aussi. Alors, il n'y a pas de raison de s'arrêter là. The two guys who did this, so René Goscinny who wrote it, and Albert Andazzo who drew it, they're both migrant people. Goscinny is from a Polish-Jewish family, brought up in Argentina. Yeah. Andazzo is Italian heritage. And they yet, are... together, they've made the Frenchest thing in the whole world. Mmm, yum, yum, sanglier. <laughs> it is that thing where you celebrate your culture because you're new to it. It's a really lovely thing. I mean, Asterix is the Frenchest thing. It's in so the French world. <laughs> that, as, I mean, I might be wrong about this. I remember reading somewhere that for a short time, the only country that didn't have Ronald McDonald as their mascot for McDonald's was France that used Asterix. <laughs> The point with Asterix is it's all about rebellion. It's all about refusing to give in. It's that fantastic thing that France had. I remember reading as a kid that for ages France didn't have Coca-Cola. It was the only market that Coca-Cola couldn't break because the French went, it is disgusting, it is horrible. <laughs> anyway, the only country resistant to the world's drink. They are always an indomitable village of yes. girls holding out against empires. Exactly. So it speaks fantastic. to their psyche. And, I, you know, the French often <laughs> refer to themselves as les Gaulois, the Gauls. Yeah. And I wonder, would they be doing that as much if it weren't for Asterix making yeah. a generation of French children aware of their ancestors, the past? Yes, all Gaul, now known as France, was occupied by the Romans. Well, no, not quite. For somewhere in Armorica, a little village was still holding out against the invaders. A little village surrounded by Roman legions. It was reprinted originally in a couple of British comics. And you're talking about sort of the, the painting over of the culture. Yeah. The, the tipex. And it was presented as a thing about British resistance. I've seen resistance. it. Awful. It was called, a, uh, they called it Britain's Never Never Shall Be Slaves. 
and they did such an abominable <laughs> translation job. Like this is like it's one thing, you know, translating it magic roundabout style, like you know, without looking at the original and just guessing. <laughs> but they seem to be like going out of their way to make it say the opposite of what was intended. The fact that it's about the British and not the Gauls. Yeah, it's it's it can't be repurposed. It has to be French. But weirdly, as a kid, you're right. I read it and I knew it was very French. The best warrior in the village, the famous Asterix, whose adventures on sale in all the best bookshops have been translated into every language. I think as well that your mentioning of libraries is definitely a book that I associate totally with libraries and school libraries. And it was in the school library alongside things like Tintin, maybe even more than Tintin, because they could have the French version and the English version. And there was that thing, you know, that, I don't know, very often as a kid, the things you are allowed to have and you like to have are things that your parents think might be educational. Even if you go, this is pure pleasure, but I'm going to tell my parents I'm learning about French culture. Well, Asterix <laughs> is such an educational series. I don't know if they meant it to be, but you learn, first of all, like in our case, it's a way of learning French. So, you know, it's hel it helps in your language classes and it also helps in your history classes because yeah. it's a really well-researched document about what life was like under Roman occupation. Yeah. Obviously, apart from the whole magic potion that gives you superhuman strength. Is that but not I, historically accurate? Apparently not. I checked. Oh, no, Obelix. No. You know you fell into the cauldron when you were a baby. I think a lot of the humour comes from the care and attention that they took to make sure that they really did research what did Roman uniforms look like, what were the names yeah. for, you know, garrisons and um, centurions and legionaries and so on. These are all words that we're only now familiar with through Asterix, but they did their homework and they found out as much as they could to make it as, I suppose, accurate as possible. Kids like to learn. And it links it to things like horrible histories, how what a huge hit that was for kids where they could learn that stuff. And I remember reading it as a kid and it somehow feeling to do with other clever comedy that had got its history right, like mm. Monty Python. And when I first saw things like Holy Grail and Life of Brian, they reminded me of Asterix in that some clever people who've been to university had looked up what it was really like under Roman occupation. And I think that kind of Life of Brian is sort of an Asterix film. It's like very, very, yes, it is. <laughs> it's very similar right down to the, the scene where he has to get his Latin right for yeah, his graffiti. That so could have been straight out of Asterix. <laughs> Romanes, Aeon, Domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. I mean, one of the things I loved about Asterix was that it seemed very sophisticated, like a very grown-up comic, because yes. the only other comics that I ever read at the time were like the Beano and the Dandy and the yes. Fun Day Times. Yeah. And the difference between like the kids' comics where every joke involves them mugging to the camera yeah. and, you know, like sort of telling you this is supposed to be funny, whereas Asterix was so subtle yeah. and they had so many big words and so much of it in Latin, you yeah. know, it made me feel like, wow, I must be someone extra clever that I can read this. Dune brevi revenius Asterix, redibo ad kinam obelix. It definitely felt like a book that was treating you well. It was, uh, it trusted that you'd read it carefully, that you'd look carefully that you'd keep up. It didn't have any of that. A readers yeah. wink to you. It didn't end each episode with a slap up meal with sausages and mash in a hotel de posh. Well, it sort of did. It ended with a wild boar feast. <laughs> yes, it does completely do that. But it didn't. Sorry, yes, formally identical. But weirdly, it, because it was a dense story that played out not over a single strip or over a single page, each one of these albums, which are compilations of little half page strips that have been published yeah. as strips. It's a long, it's a film. Yeah, and it allows for B stories and callbacks and yeah. recurring jokes. And 
the way it's paced is it's exactly like a film. I've always I've often thought that um the comics of Asterix look like storyboards. Yeah. And part of that is because like the um they're quite disciplined with the height of each frame. So it, you know, it doesn't do what a lot of comics do where the frame gets bigger and smaller and you have to follow arrows to see which one you're meant to read. It just goes disciplinedly slowly along in strips. And as a result, all of the Asterix films, whenever you've translated one of the original comics to yeah. film, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Because Udazo drew it like a storyboard and you don't need to change anything. Like the dialogue, the pacing, the visuals, they're all there. Asterix, the mansions of the gods, smashing its way into cinemas. It's very formal and it's to do with the fact that it was published as a newspaper comic. Yeah. I think because it's something that Bill Watson talks about with Calvin and Hobbes where he was trying to break those rules when he was doing Calvin and Hobbes but he said the deal was the two decks of frames are set by the newspaper it'll have to fit in this slot so Asterix even though it has these massive battles and things they all happen very very strictly within the size of half a newspaper yeah. page and yet when you read an entire Asterix book all 46 pages and by the way that's impressive they always manage to get the story exactly the same length <laughs> and you, you can't tell it never feels rushed or stretched no. and it never feels like it's been chopped up for no. serialization. You don't I, have every two pages, you know, Asterix then mugs to the camera and says, what'll I do next week, readers? It flows perfectly well from start to finish. And I often found it strange, the idea that, you know, it came out serialized. Yes, Because I don't know how you would do a good job of chopping the story up. It never feels like a to-be-continued moment. It feels like, well, it's just stopped abruptly. It's seamless. It's been written for both forms. They know that it's going to come out as a book. It's going to be compiled as a book. And when I'm reading sometimes, I think Tintin's the same. There's two half pages have been joined together to make a page. Mm. And it's absolutely fascinating to watch that relentless structure of you need to build and fall and then build and fall in the page, but not feel like you're doing that for when it comes out as a book. I need to go back and read them again just to notice it. It's a really good discipline. It's really hard to spot it. You, you, you slice the pages up of the books you know really well and try and spot where that hinge is. And it's always there. It's kind of concealed. It feels like it's happening. But that discipline means it's got a relentless comic rhythm that you don't get in a Batman comic or something. It's got a relentless, it needs to go diddle diddle dum diddle diddle dum So it keeps it moving. It's got a lovely comic pace to it. It's a bit like making something for TV where you have to naturally work out where the ad break's going to fall. Yeah. Within an even bigger discipline than that, it feels more like the comic rhythm of you've got to go set up development punchline, set up development punchline. It's got a relentless pace to it, a, a playfulness to it, that even when it's got a great big epic storyline, it's broken into tiny comic scenes. So it means that dramatically it works, but it's more like, I don't know, a Coen Brothers film where it's got antic energy to it, yeah. manic characters, because they're trying to work over six, eight frames to get you to a punchline regularly. It's got an iron discipline of comic rhythm to it that is a masterclass. These are sort of comic novels, and they do remind me of Woodhouse and things like that. They remind me of they are formal. Someone has sat down with a lot of index cards who really knows what they're doing yeah. and they are threading stuff together and they are a demonstration of how to thread an exciting story for children but it keeps moving and, and is exciting and rich and comic and action-filled and surprising. It's brilliant. But of course we should mention that what, we're, what we've been discussing up to now is the Asterix books up until 1977 <laughs> when René Gassini died and Uderzo, the artist, is like, well, I want to carry on doing Asterix, even without the writer. I'll write them myself. And they were never as good. Yeah. And you can tell, like, the quality just immediately plummets. And the books that he was doing on his own, they had quite a lot of much, much larger frames with, yeah. you know, the characters just wide-eyed and shouting, what? With, you know, <laughs> huge speech balloons. <laughs> and something really over-the-top surprising happens every three minutes. 
in a way that Gassini's original books never did, where it was a lot more subtle and a lot more better paced, I think. There's definitely a golden age. And I think you look at it, it's the first one comes out in about 1959 to 1977. There's one posthumous one in 1979, I think, isn't there? Yes. He wrote and then was finished. So basically, it's, it's 59 to 79. It's 20 years of the golden age of Asterix. That's part of... So the reason that I've nominated the specific Asterix books that I brought in is because I think it's my favourite era. Asterix is a lot like Tom and Jerry and the Simpsons, where <laughs> just from like, looking, you can tell age. which era it's <laughs> <Yes>. from. <laughs> You're not too early, they haven't found their feet yet. Not too late, they jumped the shark. But this sweet spot in the middle is Asterix and the Big Fight from 1966. Yes. And I think my, the reason I like this era best is it's the coziest. And you can yeah. tell by looking at Obelix. So in the very, very early <laughs> stories, Obelix is a big, muscular, almost threatening figure. And then the books towards the end, he's muscly again. Whereas in the middle... He's like a friendly beach ball. Yeah. And he gets, he sort of, he seems to shrink before he starts growing again. And <laughs> I would say in this book, he's the smallest. He's the roundest, the friendliest, and the most beach ball y. Yeah. That's part of why I like it so much. It's because he's got other- stripy trousers. Again, you open an Asterix book, and I'm going to look at it. I've got Asterix the Big Fight open And here. I've got uh, Asterix and Le Combe des Chefs. Have we got we them can, open here? We can compare them, by the way, because um, they remastered the Asterix books recently. Ooh. So what I have here. This is how it looked in the 60s when a different team did the colouring in. And you can see, if we look, if you compare our page yeah. 11s, um, Obelix's belt in my original one is entirely green and they've gone outside the lines. Whereas in the nicely remastered one, they've made his belt a bit yellow and it's all a lot neater and crisper. It's lovely. I, I didn't realise um, Adelso was colourblind. He wouldn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, basically he used to mark them all up with, um, which I think is standard for cartoons, he'd mark them all up with numbers. But he didn't know what, what, what was going on. But uh, you're right, the remaster is absolutely beautiful. They're really lovely. This is a cartoonist nerdery thing. There are two things that can happen to colour on a comic strip. One is that you can do what, say, uh, if, you, if you look at Watchmen, the colour of the costumes will change depending on the lighting. So it looks like it's been lit by Roger Deakins. Beautiful. So basically, if it's a moody thing, then someone who's in a blue uniform might be in a dark blue uniform mm-hmm. under light. Or you can do this kind of comic strip lighting where if Obelix has got pale blue stripes on his trousers... In every single frame, yeah. it's the same colour of pale blue. It's so reassuring. It is Superman blue, Superman exactly. red. It's and yet, lovely. despite these you know, solid block, very cartoony colours and this cartoony style, it's so realistic and there's so much yeah. detail. And I think that's another thing that I liked about this style over stuff like the Beano and the Funday Times is that everything looks quite realistic. Yeah. You know, everything looks quite 3D. And if you had to translate this into 3D graphics or, you know, into live action, it does it really easily because it makes sense. It all works. It's not scrappy. And I remember as a kid looking at this and going, this is astonishing drawing. This was the way you wished you could draw as a kid. Yeah. You could look at, I've talked to Joe Neary about this, about achievable art. When you looked at like Quentin Blake or Ronald Searle, you went, oh, it's a bit scribbly. I could probably do that. Exactly. And this is definitely in the category of, oh, oh, I think someone quite clever did this. It's very solid. Well, the perspective is all perfect. You could copy it and you could draw it on, I don't know, on a notebook at school. You could learn which to I draw did it. a lot. <laughs> but it, and it's an inspiration in how to draw. But the solidity of it and the realism of that world, the fact that we should talk about why Asterix works, I think. And one of the things is it always opens the same way. It's got a title sequence. Yeah. And the title sequence opens as a big page of a map with a lovely big magnifying glass that I'm sure you and I both copied into <laughs> notebooks, showing the, the corner of Gaul that, that is still holding out against Roman occupation in the time of Julius Caesar. And that map says, here we are, and it's almost like zooming in drone shot to show you where we're set. And the next page is always 
a list of all the characters with them doing sort of characteristic things. So Getafix is mixing up a cauldron of magic potion and Obelix is, is holding a big men here and Asterix looks full of energy and what statistics the chief is being carried around his shield. And this is like the opening titles of Brooklyn Nine-Nine where they all go starring so-and-so yeah. and they do a characteristic thing. So you go, oh, so he's the plucky guy. He's the strong guy. He's the thing. And by the time you get to page two, you know everything you need to know yeah. to follow it. And then the next picture will always, always be, and I say always, I mean most of the time, be, <laughs> a picture of the village. Beautifully set up. The perspective all perfect. Cozy. This is the place we're going to. This is the place that's under threat. Yeah. This is the home we go back to. Well, it's such a lovely world that they create where you just you want to be part of the Gaulish village. You want to live there. Yeah. And there's these, well, really, Asterix is two worlds. There's these two very contrasting environments. One of them is the Gaulish village and the other one is the Romans. Yes. And the contrast between them is so strong. So whenever you see the Romans, they're almost always miserable. They're, <laughs> they're fearing for their lives. They've got time. such contempt for the people both above them and below them. And their whole world is bureaucracy and straight lines. What do you mean coming back here with your uniforms in that state? And the Gaulish world, like, is visually different as well. Yeah. I, I only noticed this this week thinking about it, that everything in the Gauls world is round. They sit around round tables, yeah. they've got big round noses, they live in round houses. We're hunting a Roman. And if we meet a wild boar, that's fine with me too. The way the Romans treat each other, it's all very sort of like they're all out for themselves, they're stabbing each other in the back. The Gauls... They love each other, and this is despite the fact that they beat the shit out of each other all the yeah. time. But it convincingly comes from a place of love. Like, you would much rather live in the Gaulish village where they punch each other all the time than in the Roman tent. We had a tough battle with two Gauls. Two Gauls who were reinforced by a giant dog. It's got a rough-and-tumble family, whereas the Romans, yeah, exactly. are, the Romans are always competing and there's lots of hierarchies. They've all got roles. They, all, they can all get in trouble. They can be sent to, they can be sent to be gladiators. Yeah. They can be sent to the circus, thrown to the lions. And by Jupiter, I can tell you, they'll finish up inside the lions in the circus. They're always worried about their position. And the great thing about the Gauls is the Gauls are all very happy where they are. There is something in common with the Smurfs village. Oh, yeah. Which is another great sort of like European bond destiny. <laughs> that thing of you start off in a beautiful little village that is a hobbit town. It's all thatched cottages and all the things. Everything's very round and cuddly. And it's all about food and feasting yeah. and joking and laughing. And then outside is the empire and it is the rebels and the empire it's that lovely setup that you understand as a kid so it's kind of the school kids and the teachers if you fail in a single task then you will all become slaves of rome okay we understand the gorish village is basically a family they've got the grandpa which is geriatrix <laughs> there's um getafix is the father figure because yeah. you know he's the only one who sort of disciplines them he's the only one who never gets involved in the fights Oh, even yeah. though he's the one that gives them the strength in the form of the magic potion. Yeah. Vital statistics, I'm not sure what his role is. Like, he's namely the chief, but he very rarely does chief-like things other than uncle. being carried around on a shield. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they don't really take him very seriously. No, no he's one... Well, it's weird because he's he... one of the lads. They're never afraid to beat him up, just like everybody else. <laughs> but they always refer to him as, oh, chief. Yeah. And they carry him around and they've got such respect for him and they always cheer for him. It's a really solid family. And what you've got is is you've got a lovely uh, precinct, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. uh, which is your, your village, and you've got a lovely cast of characters. And right from, I've, I've had a quick look at Asterix the Gaul, the first one. It's there from straight away. They, they tell you within the first three pages about three things you need to know, which is, here are your guys, here's who they are, here's a guy who makes the magic potion, which is why the village can hold out against uh, Roman domination, is it's got a magic potion that means they can get enormous strength. 
it tells you that Obelix is super strong because he fell into the cauldron of magic potion as a baby and is now the strongest person in the village. But this is the strange thing is that you mentioned that every book starts with the sort of title sequence yeah. where it introduces all the characters. And yet there's a fair amount of seemingly unnecessary exposition. So every time <laughs> Obelix tries and fails to get a taste of the magic potion, mm. which he's not allowed to have because he fell into the cauldron when yeah. he was a baby. And they say it every time, despite the fact that there's not a single person on earth reading that book that doesn't already know this. And even when he's just giving Asterix a bottle for his journey, he's like, here you go, Asterix, here is a bottle containing the magic potion that will give you the superhuman strength. Thank you, Druid. Like it, We know, but they do it every time. I think it's a really caring thing. I think that those patterns, that familiarity, it's saying to the audience, don't worry, you'll never get lost. Mm. And I thought that was really lovely, looking back at Asterix the Ghoul, going, obviously, there's loads of stuff that's added to the world in later books, uh, extra elements like the pirate ship or the fact that Obelix collects Roman helmets as a game. Yeah. There's stuff that it turns out. But if you found Asterix the Ghoul in a school library and read that one third, you wouldn't necessarily know it was the first one because every single one of them takes the effort to tell you the full setup. And the full setup involves you knowing about five things, which is set up within the first few pages of everything. Yeah. And they say it out loud. It probably comes from being a serial comic, as in they mustn't ever assume you've read all of them. Yeah. And I think the lovely thing is you could pick up, obviously, we're not talking about the ones after 1979. <laughs> you could pick up any Asterix book from those golden years, and that could be your first one. And it would tell you all the rules, and you'll be familiar with them within about five pages, and then you can have fun. What's happening is that they're having fun in the forest, and I'm bored to death, confined to the village with nothing whatever to do. And the fact that there isn't like a very ongoing arc that means you need no. to read them in order is a very good thing, especially if you're not reading the original French ones, because um, on the back of <laughs> oh, the yes. ones published in the UK, they have, have you read all the Asterix books? And here they are in completely the wrong order. In English so order. So in, in the English order, it goes Asterix the Gaul from 1959, Asterix in Spain, which was like from around the middle, like late yeah. 70s, and then back to Asterix in Britain, and so on and so on, all in a jumbled up order, right down to very, very near the end, book number, is this 24? They finally published Asterix and the Banquet. Do you know why? I'm Okay, I don't know why, but I'm guessing. Go My on. assumption has always been because Asterix and the Banquet is a very, very, very French-centric story, and it relies on an intricate knowledge of all of the different stereotypes about the different regions of France. Anthea Bell and Derek Hockridge, who did an incredible job translating the yep. books, probably thought, let's not bother with this one, and then finally gave in when it had been decades. Is that the right answer? It's 100% the right answer. Yes. <laughs> Anthea Bell and Derek Cockridge. Anthea Bell, of course, do you want my top fact about Anthea Bell? Yes. Martin Bell's sister. And I can honestly say I was a leading figure in the worst daily television news programme ever broadcast by the BBC. You are completely right. The reason they're in that order is they translated them in the order that would sell best in Britain. So you get the Asterix in Britain comes in quite early because it's 1966. Asterix in Spain, I imagine, translated early because this is around the time there's lots of package holidays to Spain so British people would get the Spanish jokes because Asterix books were published alternately in order. I only found this out today. They would do a domestic one and then one where Asterix would go to another country. So it would be odd-numbered Asterixes are set in the village yep. and even-numbered ones are set in Switzerland or Spain or Corsica or whatever. So they were going for... The foreign adventures require you to understand regional stereotypes as viewed from France. And Asterix and the Banquet is a load of jokes about French regional cooking that literally no one in Britain will get. So it's quite a late translation. But they're translated in the order they thought they would sell or be understood in, uh, in Britain. So there you go. You and suddenly right. there is a bit of logic to it there. That grid on the back, which used to be on the back of Tintin, huge mistake in the 90s, I think, they removed the grids, which meant as a kid you didn't feel you wanted to collect them all anymore. And the versions I've got, oh, yeah. which are recent... They've just got on the back, 
a picture of Asterix and Obelix in the plot. I don't care about the plot. I want to know how many of them I've got in my collection. Well, the French versions, <laughs> the originals never used to do the grid like we have, oh, so the they grid. always had. Oh, um, is... Obelix is um, tapping away at his men here, and he's written down the names of all the books. But I agree, the, the way we did it in the UK, where you actually can see the pictures of them and all of these wonderful, colourful... Yeah. They're it's... like album covers. You want to collect them. You want to get them all. It's, yeah, it's the Mr. Men books. It's a brilliant thing that a lot of acquiring these brightly coloured, desirable books, whether it was Ladybird or whatever, were saying, have I got the full set? And they are pocket money books. They're seven, eight quid now to buy. They're yeah. completely affordable for a kid with, with pocket money. Or they're in the library because they're stuck in the library and you want to know which ones have I read. Got, 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 not got, need. One of my biggest regrets is that, um, so when I was about seven or eight years old, I went to an Asterix convention in Earl's Court, which Whoa. is how, which is how, by the way, I got my copy of Asterix in Switzerland that was signed by, it says 2J with best wishes, Derek Hockridge and Anthea Bell. Amazing. This is, I'm Touched very, very proud greatness. I got this. But a few minutes before they signed this, um, there was an audience with um, Albert Udozo. Wow. And they got um, people in the audience to put their hands up and ask questions. And I remember my one was, and I was only about seven or eight years old, why are the Asterix books in Britain in a different order? Oh. And then the translator repeated my question to Yudazo. He then said something, and then the translator said to me, he has absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's worse. I remember now. He said, no. Before the translator turned to Yudazo, he said to everyone in the room, he said, well, I don't think Mr. Yudazo will know that, um, and then asked him, and indeed he had no idea. Double what humiliation. A wasted opportunity. But obviously, I'm, I'm delighted I can tell you today that your suspicions were correct. It's to do with how hard they were to translate. We should talk about the job <laughs> that Anthony Bell and Derek Hockridge did because it's it is incredible. a mammoth task translating Asterix into English. And probably the most challenging one by far was Asterix in Britain. So yeah. in the original French version, they travel to Britain and they meet these people who speak French badly, the way that English people try to speak French. So how on earth do you translate that to English? What they did was they made the Gauls speak perfect English and the Britons speak like Biggles, where everything's, oh, yeah. jolly rum thing, eh, what? Yes, <laughs> they're also, yeah, there's that RAF banter. Yeah. Sort of Bertie Wooster kind of thing. Yeah, it's, and it's weird, you look at the pictures, and I can't believe, you look at Asterix in Britain, I can't believe, because of the way they're drawn, that they weren't speaking like that. They're drawn with a beautiful sort of toffee-nosed attitude that is absolutely perfect. Yeah. Is there always fog like this in Britain? Oh, my goodness, no. We have fog only when it isn't raining. I have here, this is a very strange find. Um, so a lot of the books in my Asterix collection are courtesy of my dad, who every time he went away on a business trip to whichever country he'd be in in Europe, he'd bring back an Asterix books in that language. So I have at home, I've got Asterix books in Dutch, Swedish, uh, wow. Spanish. And he brought back this. Uh, this one says, J'apprends l'anglais avec Asterix, learning English with Asterix. So it's got on the left-hand side, the Anthiabel Derek Hockridge translation of Asterix in Britain, and on the right-hand side, a sort of vocabulary and grammar guide for the French school kids. We, we make a return to the idea that these go into school libraries because they're useful for you to learn their own and other culture. They see the world differently than we do, and this has been translated. You're right, you were always aware as a kid that this, this hadn't been written in your country. It had been translated for you, and you would have to adapt to that. You'd have to accept that. You'd go, this hasn't been done by the guys at DC Thompson up in Dundee. This has been done by someone from another country. This is how the French see us. But you also don't mind it at all because they did such a good job. And also, what a joy, what a rare treat to see how the British look from the point of view of the French. It's, something that, it's something that we're not really exposed to a lot. A lot of the time we see what the rest of the world thinks of us. It's from an American point of view. Yeah. But I always found it really refreshing and quite funny to see, oh, I see. So on the other side of the much smaller pond, we have a reputation for having terrible food. Aha, said Obelix, cheering up again and expecting a sizzling whole roast boar to arrive on his plate. 
What he'd got instead was another shock. A couple of slices of plain boiled boar, and a lot of something green. Scrumptious mint sauce, explained Anticlimax, tucking in. The joke with Asterix in Britain is they're going across the channel to visit people who are the same tribe, a different wing of the same tribe. It's, it's more kind of ghouls, and they're, they're sort of second cousins and third cousins. But it's just the way they cook boar is revolting. A tankard of beer, drunk warm, the way the Britons liked it, came as a nasty shock to a Gaul who usually drank his beer chilled. Oh dear, said Anticlimax, worried, seeing Obelix's face. Isn't it warm enough? I can get them to take the chill off for you. And again, it doesn't. It never feels like it comes from a place of hate because yeah. if you look through all the Asterix books, they visit like pretty much every country that borders modern France, and they've got something horrible to say about all of them. <laughs> and I don't know if you would get away with it now, but the fact that it's set two thousand years ago means yeah. that they can put their hands up and say, "Oh no, no, we're not being xenophobic. We're just talking about you know the ancient Goths from two thousand years ago, yeah. or you know the Helveticans, not the Swiss, and so on." That's a really interesting thing. I think what Asterix is and remains is a really fun game about stereotypes yeah. and how other countries are seen by one group. And the joke is, when I read this, and as you said, this is the Frenchest book ever, there's something about that Gaulish village that you want to live there. Weirdly, that village is full of stereotypes about the French. Well, yeah, they're just as able to laugh about themselves. It actually Perfect. says more about what the French think of themselves yeah. by comparing themselves to their neighbours on all sides. It's got a gleeful allo-aloneness to yeah. it. And you go... Oh, it's quite fun to play with these stereotypes. Not that anyone's taking the stereotypes seriously. No one really believes that. But it's got a, a sort of vigorous energy enjoying the stereotypes and your expectations of your neighbours that maybe we feel slightly more uncomfortable about now because obviously stereotypes and prejudice are two different wings of the same habit. Yeah. But the fun of it is that when these French ambassadors go abroad and meet their neighbours or when their neighbours come and visit... They become friends. Oh yeah, that's and the thing. Like it always it's a very seems... common market idea that we can. I all think get the best up. one of these, um, uh, Asterix the Legionary, yeah. is the one where they travel to. I think they travel to North Africa, but on the way they join the Roman army for uh, some convoluted reason. And on the way they form a little cohort with lots of friends from all over Europe. So in their little group, they've got one guy from Britain, they've got one Goth, one Spaniard, and yeah. so on. And they're all friends, and they all get on. It's that sort of platoon of stereotypes that fueled comedy for decades yeah of course and we sort of lost for very good reasons mm -hmm. but there's a nostalgia i think about it when you read this and go oh wasn't it great when you could just insist that all british people wore bowler hats and some of it <laughs> some of it isn't any kind of satire at all like them um, so for example every time they meet someone from egypt in their speech balloon are some hieroglyphics yeah which that's the only time that someone speaks a foreign language in asterisk that we the readers don't understand yes. most of the rest of the time the device they use is the font changes. Yeah. <laughs> so when they go over to the Goths or Germany, yeah. everyone speaks in this old-fashioned Gothic font, which it's is unintelligible to the Gauls. Yeah, and there's font. so many hilarious, um, like when the Gauls try to speak other people's languages <laughs> and they can't get it quite right. So there's one where they meet some Vikings yeah. when they travel to America of all places. And there's a sequence where they're trying to copy each other's language. And of course, the way you represent Norse in Asterix is all of the O's have lines through them and the yeah. A's have circles above them. <laughs> And then when the French try to copy it, the, the line through the O goes the wrong way. Yeah. And the circle above the A is a square and they do it on the wrong letters. And, you know, you can, you can read it and try and imagine what's that meant to sound like. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's just funny. I'm now I'm bringing Asterix and Cleopatra because there's a brilliant joke there where Obelix is trying to speak in hieroglyphics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in, obviously all the hieroglyphics are absolutely beautiful, but Obelix's ones are like little stick men. Yeah. And it's just like, it's a beautiful way of, of illustrating sort of communication difficulties. Some interesting picture language came drifting down from the Egyptian lookout. It included, among other things, a skull and crossbones. What's the lookout say? asked Asterix. 
It says there's a pirate ship to port, said Edifice. Obelix was delighted. It's our dear old friends. You, you, coming over. Asterix and Cleopatra is a great one because I think it came out the same year as the film Cleopatra and there's lots of jokes about Hollywood epic films in it. So many jokes that would have gone over my head. So yeah. I think there's so much that I would have understood if I'd been from the right era and French. Like a lot <laughs> of the characters, um, I only found this out like many decades later, like the characters are caricatures of French stars. Oh, really? And Gassini and Uderzo turn up in their own books a lot. So Gassini and Uderzo, the creators... They appear in a lot of like not quite canon asterisk stuff. Like they're sort of celebrities that became famous with the books, and they always refer to themselves as les pères d'Astérix, the fathers of Asterix. Wow. It reminds me a lot of Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who have become like you know, if you're a South Park fan, you know a lot about them, and they have right. this huge personality that's not in the cartoon itself. Maintenant, je vous présente nos deux invités. Nos deux invités, c'est René Goscinny et Albert Ruderzo. Ce sont deux parents, deux pères de famille d'une famille très nombreuse. Alors René Goscinny, donnez-nous le nom d'un de ses enfants, Astérix. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's an enormous sort of carry-on energy of the feeling of maybe reading something that is old-fashioned now, because obviously it's, it's peak period. It sort of syncs up with when the carry-ons were doing this era of sort of historical comedies. What do you mean by that? Seneca says there's a bird of ill omen about. Oh, yes, I've just seen him with her in the library. You are aware you're reading something slightly old-fashioned. The stereotypes are fun, but maybe you aren't as happy with them as you were. There are no female characters. That's there possibly, is. I think that's, that's what's dated the most, I think, is the female characters in Asterix. So, for example, there are only two recurring female characters, maybe three, three and a half. And all of the recurring female characters, some of whom don't even have names, one of them is just called Geriatrix's wife. They're either sexy or they're a nagging wife. Yeah. It's, it's not a good look, but you've got to remember... It was a different time and a different country. So, you know, France in the 60s is like Britain in the 40s. Like, they would eventually catch up. The things that haven't been remastered is they haven't remastered the lingering sexism where, yes. where Or, or, or the pirates, which we really shouldn't talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, I imagine there's some tipex that could be applied to some of the depictions of pirates, which are a bit 1930s cartoons. But apparently was, this, was a, this was a very common thing with the, uh, the French bon dessinée is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that really would not be allowed to be published now. So whether it's... Um, He's not good. 
uh, Lucky Luke, um, yeah. Tintin. There's you know, some horrible stuff in there, but that's just part of what it was like in those days. I imagine people are delighted you can still get these, and they haven't been. Obviously, it would be altering the illustrations, which would feel like sacrilege. But I remember as a kid being aware that we'd stopped drawing characters of colour like mm. that in the UK before they stopped doing it in Asterix. Maybe because I didn't realise that some of the Asterix books I was reading were from 20, 30 years earlier. <laughs> One of the books written by Uderzo himself was called Asterix and the Secret Weapon. The main plot of that was the Romans had deployed a secret weapon to defeat the Gauls, which is an army of women, because the Gauls, they're gentlemen, and they never, ever physically attack women. But then the way they eventually defeat this Roman army of women is by distracting them with some shopping. That was 1991. <laughs> There's really said, no these excuse. These are the Frenchest books ever yeah. <laughs> written. And sometimes they're very, very French. Welcome to the Isle of Pleasure. We were expecting you this way. But one of the most fun things you can do is to compare them side by side. And some of the decisions that Anthea Bell and Derek Hockridge made are bizarre. So if you could um, refer to your text on page 11. This is the big fight. Uh, page 11 of Asterix and the Big Fight. Oh, so um, this, is, this is the part of the story where Obelix throws a men here to try and get rid of some Roman legionaries. And squashes Getafix. Squashes Getafix with predictably hilarious consequences. <laughs> In the original, the men here goes... Boom. In the British one, it goes boom. boom. And then there's some more later on. So like one of the most common sound effects is to chack T-C-H-A-C. Like you never see that sound effect anywhere else. No, path and chack. Yeah, path becomes biff in some of the translations. Uh, this book, by the way, like the reason I chose it is because I think my favourite sequence in all of Asterix ever is on page 20. The premise is Getafix has lost his memory because of Obelix throwing that men here on his face. <laughs> uh, and... Oh no, the Gaulish village now realises they've got no one who can make them their superhuman magic potion. So in this sequence, they're trying to encourage him to remember how to make it, and they've given him a cauldron, they've given him loads of ingredients, and Getafix, when he's been hit, he turns into, I think he's supposed to be stoned. I'm fine, but who are you? He's constantly giggling. <laughs> he's constantly smiling, which is such a huge contrast from the real Getafix. I'm so glad you're feeling well again. Who never smiles ever. Yeah, yeah. And in this one, he's being really super polite and calling everyone monsieur. And in this one, he says, can I put this in? Uh, okay, if you like. And it goes boom. Like, fast forward a few pages, and there's a massive crater where it's obviously exploded loads and loads of times. It's just such fun, this book. It's so cosy. He seems to be remembering the formula. These books are cosy, and I have enormously fond associations with them because when you went into a library or a school library and you were told reading is good for you, and I liked reading, I was a big bookish kid, I liked reading, but I liked reading these most. And the reason was because they had loads of drawings and they were really brightly coloured and you could lose yourself in them. They were not daunting. They were incredibly welcoming. It's completely misunderstood how much a child is welcomed in by drawings, by visual stuff. And if you've got a mixture of drawings and text like Winnie the Pooh, Molesworth or this, you're drawn in. There was still probably a slight sort of sneering about comics when I was that age. I loved the fact that my school library and the local library would have these in. I could get them and they felt like some of the most luxurious comics you could get. And it was a whole adventure story you could read that was done with drawings. I loved reading, but I really loved reading stuff with drawings in. It's got such read againable quality because, yeah. you know, you can read it once quickly through to get the plot and to take yeah. the story in and then go back and start again and look at all the stuff you missed, all of the little background details, all the illustrations. There's one here. This is 
for some reason, my copy of Asterix and the Mansions of the Gods is in Dutch. And uh, uh, halfway I, through... Mine's in, mine's in French. There you go, that's perfect. Oh, here we go. All right, <laughs> so, um, so, page... Uh, turn to page... Oh, the page number's missing because it's too big. Um, <laughs> page 28 is a massive double-page spread. Yeah. So, um, the premise is... And I wonder if this might be one of the few occasions when they were like, uh-oh, let's, we need some filler to you yeah. know, get to 48 pages. One of the Romans is sat in the circus and he's reading what's supposed to be a pamphlet for this new, the Romans have built this high-rise development near the Gaulish village. And um, here it is in like incredible detail, loads of gags. I actually confess, back when I used to read Asterix the most, when I was just like seven, eight, nine years old, I skipped this bit. It was too wordy. But if I had the English version or the French version, I would read it again. But this one's Dutch and it's not much use to me. I found myself doing it this afternoon. I was reading the big fight and flicking through and realising I was reading the bubbles and getting a rough sense of where people were in the frames. Mm. And then going back and looking again and seeing the detail in the background, the solidity of that village, the realness of those houses, the physicality of the violence, which is so exciting. It's so energetic. Asterix is rather a lot like The Simpsons. Yeah. Where, you know, the plot is fantastic and you've got this great storytelling and great characters, but there's loads of pause and miss it. And yeah, you know, the yeah. equivalent in an Asterix book is just spend a bit longer looking at a detail in a frame before moving on with the story. There's a misunderstanding with how kids read that somehow putting the drawings in makes reading easier. And I think putting the drawings in makes reading more involving. You're using different parts of your brain. You're doing two things at once. You're running several programs at once. I think it's very sophisticated the way that you read a comic. It's a misunderstanding of what you're doing when you're reading at all. What you're doing in your reading is you're translating abstract shapes into ideas in your head. And those abstract shapes might be letters and words. Nothing's really happening. It's just there's some shapes. What you're doing with Asterix is you're reading the words. You're making the sounds in your head. You're imagining the voices. And then you've also got these beautiful drawings that give you a sense of place. And you can imagine yourself there. The idea that somehow a comic is less of an imaginative trigger than reading prose is insane. It's exactly the same. In fact, it might be richer. I loved reading anything that was in comic form as a kid because it made my brain fizz. Yeah, there is is still, there's still so much gap filling that your brain has to do. So for example, you know, when, when I read, when I read the Asterix books as a kid, I I always gave them voices that sounded absolutely nothing like they were in the film. (laughs) Yeah. Like for some reason, I always remember imagining that Asterix and Obelix had pretty much the same voice. (laughs) And then in the film, obviously, you know, they, they give him a deep voice and he speaks a bit slowly. And in, in my head, that doesn't suit him. We've been in the woods hunting. And what with dogmatics helping us, it all went very well. That's a beautiful point. When I say you give them voices, the voices aren't to do with sound. I wouldn't be able to, I'm not a great actor, I wouldn't be able to do an impression of those people. But I know what they sound like in my head. Yeah, because they're so expressive. The like, faces, that's one of the best things about Udozo's drawings. Like, yes, they were very realistic and you could render them in 3D very easily because they look very real. But they're so cartoonish, and you yeah. know, can, he gives such a voice to the characters like just by the shoulder movements and the eyebrows. It's all there. You're reading character in something, but it's not performed for you. It's performed by the line, by the colour, by the position of the characters. It's performed by the choice of words, yeah. the size of the speech bubbles. In the same way as you might say that listening to a radio play, that great thing, that the pictures are better on the radio. Uh, there's something about these that a film adaptation, no matter how well done, will never get because it is happening in your head, even down to the thickness of the pen line on the lettering in the bubbles, will tell you the voice, the sound, the mood, the noise of the the frame, the sound effects, the size of the speech bubbles, the energy, the whiz lines. There's so much going on. You stage this in your head using all the clues that are on the page that are there for you. And I think that the way you read these 
is about as sophisticated as any comic book. Oh, yeah, and Yudeta's like an animator with there's so much movement going on. Yeah. And like one of my favourites from this book, page 33, in the middle, there's a bit where um, Getafix is jumping out of his house and you sort of have to put two and two together and watch the pattern of the whoosh lines behind him. He's doing these tiny little bounces and he bumps his head on the way out. <laughs> that could never be as funny in the film. Yeah. I think like when you have to imagine yourself, like you have to do the timing in your head and work out exactly the timing between each of those tiny bounces. Like in your head, that's going to be as funny as it can possibly yes. be. One of the tones in Asterix is incredibly energetic slapstick. And that slapstick is staged in your head yeah. by your imagination. So it will be at the perfect you've been framed moment and to bump his head, that will happen. And it will also be not only as funny as possible in your head, it'll be as violent as possible. <laughs> and the thing is, Asterix, like, you know, on the one hand, it's very, very violent because people are attacking and punching each other all the time. Like, there's usually the most common thing that happens is someone gets punched and it's so powerful that they disappear up into the sky and yeah. collapse on the floor in a heap. <laughs> and yet, never any blood, never any death. The, the yeah. worst thing that the magic potion can do to someone is give them a black eye and make them go, oh, join the army, they said. <laughs> Yeah, it has got that energy of really good animation. It feels very Roadrunner. It feels very sort of Looney Tunes, yeah. which again was something I loved at the time. Before you could get videos and DVDs and things, and maybe you weren't allowed to watch the, mm. the TV at home, in your hand you had a complete cartoon, a comic book that had the energy of a really good Tweety Pie and Sylvester. And I'm it, sure there's a yours. lot of stuff in there that came from Uderzo rather than Gossini. So, for example, like in the fights, there are beautifully choreographed scenes where usually Obelix was because he enjoyed it so much. He was the most creative one when it came to how to beat up the Romans. And he'd often be doing something that involves like picking up one of the Romans, swinging him around and getting lots of them at the same time so that he can then pile the helmets up, which is, that's never mentioned, by the way. The fact that Obelix likes to collect helmets is just something that's there in the background and almost never discussed. Well, you could, yeah, you're adding, you're adding jokes yourself, you're adding detail yourself, you're spotting things. You're, it's, it's incredibly rewarding the more dense it gets. And I think one of the things that's lovely about these as well is talking about what comedy is. Comedy is about sharing, sharing jokes, laughing together. And these were something that you didn't necessarily read with a friend. You didn't like, like you might do a comic, like you might sort of read a comic together. You definitely sat on your own with these in a library or you took them home from the library and sat at home, read them under the, the covers with a torch. The relationship between you and the artists who made it was very, very intimate. And you laughed inside. You would read it to yourself and go, this is mine. This belongs to me. I'm going on this adventure with these guys and I'm laughing inside. I'm laughing in a way that a good comic novelist is odd because most of the time comedy, when you go and see stand-up comedy or if you go and see a comic play or you go to a film, you laugh in a crowd and you all laugh together. There's something lovely about the laugh you have inside yourself. Especially because you can take your own time reading it. You can either like, you know, whiz through to get the plot or you can slow right down and take in all the little detail. It, it's very, it feels very personal. <laughs> It's also very reassuring to know that the Asterix books continue to be so popular now and the French are rightly so, so proud of Asterix to the extent that Uderzo, he died only quite recently, about two, three years ago, and um, Asterix is continuing without him. There is now a new team, or there's a new writer and a new artist who have tried to faithfully recreate what Asterix was like before 1977. Right. I've read a couple of them. They're quite good. It's wonderful, actually. If you open, this is Asterix and the Chiefs and Daughter, which is, the, as you said, the most recent one. You open it up and you will be fooled into thinking this was just another one from the classic era. It looks and feels exactly right. Yeah. It's something clearly they care about and they love and they are simulating it. It feels a little bit like uh, when they brought Doctor Who back and tried to make it exactly as they'd remembered mm. it was when they were a kid. And obviously one of the big uh, admirers of this is uh, Russell T. Davis, who chose 
Asterix and the Roman Agent as his book on Desert Island Discs. Oh, really? I will take with me the finest book ever made, which is Asterix and the Roman Agent. Literally one of the cleverest and greatest stories ever written. I read this every year. I get such pleasure from it. You can see everything I've ever written in this book. I love it. That was a close second for me, actually, Like, because one of the amazing <laughs> things about that story, and I've, I don't know how they could have done it in any other format than a comic, is there's a device where if someone has been poisoned with jealousy by yeah. this guy whose job is to spread disorder, their speech balloon goes green. Yeah. And that's something only visible to the reader. And yeah. then th- that means there's all sorts of other amazing devices they can have where someone who's on the turn, his speech balloon goes a pale green. It hasn't yes. quite happened yet. And what an amazing and clever thing to do. It makes it possible to read people's motive. If it's two really good friends, as soon as the speech bubble goes green, you suddenly understand why they're rowing. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Very sophisticated. I've got one of the best scenes where, um, so Asterix and Obelix, they're the best of friends, which means inevitably in one of the adventures they fall out. Yeah. And uh, this one here, Asterix and Caesar's Gift, there's a sequence where they make up and it's like the second to last frame in the entire book <laughs> where like Asterix sits next to him, gives him a bit of a nudge. And then unseen, we just assume that Obelix has nudged him back because Asterix is now whizzing across the village and shouting, Obelix is friends with me again. <laughs> I should mention this book, my copy of Asterix and Caesar's Gift, there's a stamp in it says that this has been overdue back at Stanmore Library since the 13th of January, 1995. I'm so sorry. I think Are I... Are you confessing to that? I am. That's right. <laughs> have, have you finished it yet? Uh, no, I really should get around to it. <laughs> <laughs> The fact that Asterix is set more than 2,000 years ago, you know, you would think makes it timeless, yeah. but it doesn't. It's actually, Asterix is very much a product of France in the 60s and 70s because they're able, kind of like the Flintstones and the Jetsons, they're able, when they talk about the past as an allegory, you know, they yeah, can yeah. just talk about themselves. They can talk about what France was like in the 60s and 70s. So then she bought some material from a Phoenician trader to redecorate her cubiculum. Put hangings over marble, how odd. It wouldn't be one of your podcasts if we didn't talk about the Beatles a bit. The Beatles do make a cameo appearance. See, I've, I've read uh, Asterix in Britain because it features uh, Paul McCartney, the only Asterix book that has got Paul McCartney in it. Oh. I have a rule that I'll generally only finish books if they've got Paul <laughs> McCartney in it. And, uh, I've not yeah. looked at this in a while. I'm trying to... It's very early on when they arrive in Britain. Uh, page 19 of Asterix in Britain, they arrive and they come through the fog... <laughs> Obviously, there's always fog in Britain. <laughs> and they arrive, and there's a screaming noise in the distance. And it is uh, a, a depiction that says here, Wait, there's a riot going on over there. That's not a riot. I say you're in luck. That's a very popular group. They're top of the bardic charts. Which and one's meant to be which? I mean, that one's Ringo. Macca there. You can see a Macca on the edge there, leaning oh, yeah. down to... I'll come to, actually, no, now that I come back to this years later, I can tell which ones they're supposed to be, and they're that's good. brilliant. Yeah, they're good. If you're worried, like I am, that I, you won't finish a book unless it has at least some references to the Beatles, <laughs> Asterix in Britain is your starting point. I feel like we've mentioned the Beatles, now this podcast is complete. Yes, <laughs> otherwise I have to delete the podcast. I record hundreds of these where people don't mention the Beatles and have to put them in the bin. <laughs> There's a lovely joke in, I think it's in Asterix in the Big Fight, where they play with the idea of it being... 2,000 years ago, where they go to the uh, psychiatrist and there's a guy waiting outside the psychiatrist who's dressed as Napoleon. Yeah. There's a great joke going, no one knows who this guy <laughs> thinks he is. And there's a joke going, this definitely occupies two time periods. It does jokes about there being the modern world and it does anachronistic jokes, but never ones that really break the world terribly. When they build a fairground for the big fight, there is a roller coaster. There are dodgems, but they're all believably, even more than the Flintstones, the kind of dodgems and roller coasters there would be. They make it really believable. It's basically, 
it's very similar to the Flintstones in that it's the modern contemporary world, except instead of paper, everything's on these stone tablets. And apart yeah. from that, everything's pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah, there are chariots rather than dodgems and things. But they but, treat them like cars. Like in the Asterix world, chariots are exactly the same as cars and they've got service stations and yeah. they've got French auto routes and so on. It builds a world that's completely comprehensible to a kid of this generation of the modern world. It, there's no barrier. Their priorities, the way their world works, is completely readable to a young kid of the 60s, 70s. And they never, they never affect the plot. They just affect the backgrounds. And yes. on the rare occasion when something does need to be explained, they'll have like a little asterisk and then, uh, it's weird, I actually use the word asterisk when I talk about <laughs> asterisks. There's a tongue twister. But, you know, they will have a little annotation that says, um, this is what it's meant to be. Like, and it's usually... Yeah. The trans- English equivalent of so-and-so. Yeah, like it, so-and-so. it would usually be a translation of like a, a Latin name for um, a city that turned into a French city. Yeah, yeah. Which is not much help if you're nine years old in Britain. Like, <laughs> I don't know what Leon's like. Yeah. <laughs> But you're right. They never let any of the puns or the modern allegories spoil the story. The story is still convincingly happening in that time. There's never a nod that says this isn't really happening. They're really the characters really do want to win. The stakes are still really high. Bearing in mind it's a very chaotic and silly and fun thing where there's a pun every couple of lines. Nothing affects your reading of intent purpose, plot, character, and the plots are never derailed by gags. One of the best ones is um, in Asterix and the Cauldron, which I've not brought with me. I don't know if you have it. There's a bit where um, they are walking through the forest and they meet a Roman tax collector. And in his speech balloon, it takes the form of a form to fill in. (laughs) He's so boring and bureaucratic that even when he talks, it's like these tick boxes that have been typed rather than written out. And it really stands out and it's really weird. And you've got no idea how it's meant to sound if it were, you know, if you were to put that in the film, how would you translate that? And the answer is you wouldn't. And it doesn't matter. It's really funny. The books are designed to be bon dessiné. They are designed to be comic books. The best jokes in them are the ones that can only work on the page to do with speech balloons, to do with sound effects, to do with uh, the way that you can put animation, that you can do movement with a single frame of drawing. They are all to do with skills and arts and crafts that are very specific to comics. Yeah. They are just meant to be something that you have on your lap as a child, as a kid of a generation where you couldn't necessarily have things on tap, where you, you might go and see a movie and you couldn't immediately go home and then watch it again. There was an attempt constantly for me to have in my hand the closest thing, like the novel of Star Wars or something or I wanted to watch it again. Very often what I had at home was a shadow of the thing I wanted. I I wanted to watch Star Wars again, but I had to just get a comic that was a bit like watching the film. Or I really, really liked Doctor Who, but I had to have a magazine about it. I couldn't watch it again. This... The thing you got in your hand was the best it would ever be. Yeah, and you can tell because like the the films that came along, I was never a, a huge fan of them. I think they're never quite as good. So Asterix in Britain is probably the best one because it's the most faithful to the yeah. original comic. But the comic's better. The comic got yeah. more detail. There was only one occasion when they did a film that uh, Gassini and Uderzo actually worked on themselves, right. and that was The Twelve Tasks of Asterix, yeah. which no, is the only story that doesn't have an equivalent proper comic yeah. version, but it does contain one of the best and most iconic sequences in all of French literature, which is Asterix and Obelix's attempt to get a permit A38. What do we have to do in this place that sends you mad? Oh, nothing much. You have to obtain a certain permit, which will then allow you to go on to the next task. I see. Nothing but a simple administrative formality. A simple formality. You merely have to ask for permit number A38. In the 12 Tasks of Asterix story, they've been given literal Herculean tasks to, like, um, uh, somehow beat up the world's strongest man. Even Obelix can't do it because he's this amazing tactician. And they have to 
eat all the food in this room and do this, do that. They're these clever, funny tasks that are both set in the past and set in modern day France. Yeah. And by far the funniest, they are given the job to go in this nondescript government building of some sort and come out with permit A38. <laughs> we want a copy of permit number A38. And they are sent on this bureaucratic mission. No, uh, we don't want to register a galley. From one window to another. You have been misdirected. You have to apply to window number two. Going up and down stairs. No, this is the fourth floor. We want the sixth. And it's impossible. No, that one is window eight. I can't remember where they put number two. And that's now become a thing that everyone in France is familiar right. with. And I, I believe, I hope I'm not wrong about this, that people in France today refer to something that's like impossibly bureaucratic as permit A38. Wow. We want a copy of permit number A38. You're changing the way people see their own world. These are books by two people who really understand stuff and can really, really nail stuff. And so when you get something like The Mansions of the Gods or The Roman Agent, they're lovely books about human nature, about how we are. And I think it's because they're really good observers. They're good observers of character. They're good observers of, of society. And when you look up Asterix and Wikipedia and things, it's described as a satire. Yeah. And the satire is really clever and really spot on and a great way to introduce kids to quite complicated ideas. Well, this is where I think it's a lot like The Simpsons, yeah. where, you know, kids can enjoy it because, you know, it's a cartoon, it's got these great characters, great gags, but there's so much satire through it, which doesn't ruin it. It just sort of, like, adds more stuff. And it just makes me so grateful that Asterix came from the 60s and 70s and not today, because you just know Asterix would have an opinion on Brexit. <laughs> quite thorough, fruit from that. We really ought to inform our chief... It's a brilliant thing to link it to The Simpsons, because I think that is the thing it has most in common with, in the sense that it is something that grows with you, that you can't grow out of, that it's something from your childhood that you will find new levels in as you grow older. I don't read these now as reminders of my childhood. I read them as an adult reading Asterix. And in the same way as I watch The Simpsons, and I don't watch it going, oh, I remember when I liked these when I was younger. I go, I'm liking them now. You know, I never thought of that comparison till now, but I'm really proud of it now. Yeah, but I think it really works. As in, because they are designed to delight adults and children at the same time and to work on both those levels, that as you change the way you read them as you grow older, it means that this piece of art will not disappoint you. And sometimes the great risk with something you loved as a child is to go back to it and go, oh, I loved it when I was 10. But actually, I can see why a 10-year-old would like it, but I'm not getting anything out of it. Yeah, I don't get that with Asterix at all. Like, it completely stands up, and I think I'll be able to continue reading it for years and spot stuff that I didn't spot, especially because I've got all these French ones, and my French <laughs> isn't that great. I can just keep improving my French in order to enjoy Asterix better. <laughs> you can keep going deeper and deeper underneath the tipex to find out what was originally yeah. there. It's, yeah, it's, it's a process of archaeology. You grow up with them, and then you'll keep digging to find out what on earth they were saying in the first place. <laughs> Uh, what a brilliant thing to bring it. Thank you so much for bringing Asterix. Thank you very much for having me. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.